So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God is a wise father, and he knows how to limit our mischief and how to get us moving about our proper business. Matthew Henry says here, see the necessity of God's judgments upon earth to keep the world in some order and to tie the hands of those that will not be checked by law. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. God is a wise father and he knows how to limit our mischief and how to get us moving about our proper business. The doctrine of providence doesn't get as much airtime in the church as it probably deserves, but here in this chapter, we see that God will sometimes work around us and even despite us, though it is his general preference to work through us, should faithful and willing partners be available. That entire continuum is on display in this marvelous chapter of Holy Scripture. And here to walk us through it today is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 11. This chapter brings to an end the first section in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 to 11 tells the story of God and the world. Genesis chapters 12 to 50 tell the story of God and the family of Abraham. So chapter 11 can be understood, in a sense, as the last chapter of the first book. The story comes to an end with a bit of a thud. You will remember that God told Noah and his sons in Genesis 9-1 to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So they're supposed to be spreading out, having families, filling the world, and obeying the word of the Lord. <laughs> but that isn't what they have in mind. Mankind begins to trust in their technological capacities, and they begin to envision great schemes and projects that will bring them glory, security, and fame. Now, those are not bad things in and of themselves, but when you pursue those things in direct rebellion against the clear word of God, you are destined for failure and frustration. And so it goes in chapter 11. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Let's just stop there to note that the Bible says that in the future, in the renewed kingdom of God, we will have that again. Zephaniah 3.9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So God is not opposed, per se, to a unified language. In fact, he promises that there will be a unified language again in the future, but it will only come after sin and rebellion have been finally and forever put away. In fact, I don't think that there is any doubt, but that we should see the miracle of the gift of tongues on the day of Pentecost in the New Testament as a foreshadowing of that day. On that day, the day of Pentecost, one gospel was preached in many languages. The gospel is right now bringing people back together. It is making a new family out of every tribe, tongue, and family on the earth. But that's obviously a story for another day. This story goes on to say in verse 2, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. 
and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, let's pause and remember that God told them to disperse over the face of the whole earth. So this project is proposed as an alternative to obeying the word of God. God is not opposed to brick buildings per se. He is opposed to you doing anything if he has just told you to do something else. So this is not about God opposing technology. This is about God opposing rebellion, which he does fairly consistently over the course of the Bible. Now, it is interesting to note, however, that technological advancement makes human beings bolder in their rebellion. And I think that's certainly true. We feel a little more secure and we feel a little more stable and we take a little more pride in our capacity and we start thinking that maybe we don't really need to pay attention to the word of the Lord. We see that starting here. It has ever been thus, science and technology are always mixed blessings. They can improve our quality of life, but they can also make us proud, self-sufficient, and they can embolden us in our rebellion against the word of the Lord. Verse 5 goes on to say, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their speech so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, in the time between the fall and the restoration of all things, we observe God doing a number of different things to restrain the spread and effect of human evil. We saw God withholding the tree of life in chapter 3. Can you imagine how much damage human beings could do if they lived for a thousand years? Imagine what the world would be like if Hitler was still alive. There is just no question that a reasonable lifespan does a great deal to limit the amount of damage that human beings can do on the earth. Now, we also saw the introduction of law and punishment in chapter 9, and we talked about binding oaths and obligations as well. All of those things are intended to, to box us in, you might say, or, or to restrain our natural lean into sin, wickedness, and rebellion. Well, here we see another of those things that God does. Here we see God limiting our ability to network and collaborate. I love what Derek Kidner says here. He says, it makes it clear that unity and peace are not ultimate goods. <laughs> Better division than collective apostasy. That's a good word, my friends. Sometimes Christians speak about unity as if it were an absolute good, but it's not. In fact, sometimes unity is part of the problem. And if you have kids, you know that. Sometimes you have to separate them to limit the amount of stupid and sinful that goes on in your house. Okay, so it is here. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God is a wise father, and he knows how to limit our mischief and how to get us moving about our proper business. Matthew Henry says here, See the necessity of God's judgments upon earth. 
to keep the world in some order and to tie the hands of those that will not be checked by law. Pastor Paul, I want to jump in here. We talked off the top about providence, and this is a story about providence, but there is also something more here. There is something done in that passage that isn't fully undone until the day of Pentecost. Tell us a bit more about that. You're absolutely right. There's a connection between this passage and the story that we read in Acts 2. In a sense, the story of Pentecost functions as the mirror image of the story of the Tower of Babel. Prior to Babel, we are told that everyone on planet Earth spoke the same language. There was a unity of thought, purpose, and understanding that only comes from speaking the same language. But because the people were fixed upon a course of rebellion against God, that unity was actually not a good thing. It was a bad thing. And so God providentially orchestrated a widespread general scattering of human beings. The text says that he confused the language of the people. It doesn't say how, it just says that he did. So all of a sudden, people can't understand each other. So Bob was up on the scaffolding, shouting down to Fred to bring up another bucket of mortar. And then all of a sudden, Fred couldn't understand Bob. And Bob couldn't understand Fred. But Bob noticed that he could still understand Terry. And and Joe could still understand Fred. So Bob and Terry came together. And Joe and Fred came together. And so on and so on. Until you had tribes emerging. And from there, scattering to fill the earth. As God had told them to do in the first place. This scattering was done to force people to do what God had told them to do in the beginning. Fill the earth and subdue it. And it was also done to limit the capacity of human beings to rebel against God. And that isn't the first time we've seen that sort of thing in the text, is it? No. In in fact, we saw that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Right after the fall, right after God spoke to the man and the woman and the serpent, the text says that he spoke within himself. There was a conversation, as it were, within the Godhead. And that conversation is recorded at the end of the chapter, along with the execution of the divine counsel. The text says, this is Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God limited the capacity of human beings to do evil by shortening the human lifespan. You can only cause so much trouble in 75 years. That's all you get for good or for ill. Human beings can no longer eat from the tree of life and live forever after Genesis 3. That is a curse, but given the fact that people are no longer comfortable by and large living under the word of God, it is also a blessing. It is part of the wise providence of God, just like scattering into tribes is part of the wise providence of God because it too serves to limit the spread of evil. Which then is reversed on the day of Pentecost, is it not? Yes. Acts 2, 1 to 12 says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? So they're asking the same question I'm asking, and what does this mean? Well, I think one of the things that it means is that God is doing something new. He is gathering where once he was scattering. The message seems to be that because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, unity is now possible and desirable in a way that it wasn't before. And that is definitely part of the gospel message. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, 26 to 29 says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to promise. So in Jesus, we're starting a whole new story. It is creation restored. It is humanity restored. It is humanity the way it was supposed to be as opposed to the way it has been. It is humanity without tribalism. It is humanity without oppression. It is humanity without conflict and violence between men and women. It is humanity the way we want it to be and the way it was supposed to be, but the way it never has been and only can be in Jesus Christ. That is a huge part of what the gospel promises and empowers, slowly but surely, through the internal operation of the Holy Spirit, which is why this all gets started on the day of Pentecost, the day upon which the Holy Spirit falls in power upon the church. Wow, that is amazing. You know, my favorite part of this whole series has been seeing these connections between Old and New Testament. I love that. And speaking of that, I think we just stumbled onto another one. Galatians 3.29, Paul talks there about if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Well, that is the very next story that we begin to get into here in Genesis chapter 11, so let's do that. We'll jump right back into the text at verse 10. Verse 10 goes on to say, These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshed, two years after the flood. And Shem lived, after he fathered Arpachshed, 500 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshed had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshed lived, after he fathered Shelah, 403 years, and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived, after he fathered Eber, 403 years, and had other sons and daughters. Now, there's a couple things we should notice here. Just first of all, also notice the 
the scaling down of the human lifespans. Notice that people are having children now earlier, at times we can almost relate to. We've got people having kids at 35 years and at 30 years old. Well, that's almost like how we do it now. Whereas, you know, earlier in the book of Genesis, we were seeing people not having kids until they were very old and then living incredibly long amounts of time. Well, we can see here the shrinking of the lifespans almost down to what we would experience now. The other thing I want you to notice is that what we're reading here is a zoomed-in version of the genealogy we had in chapter 10. But now the focus is squarely on the family of interest. This, this, is, this is the line that's going to take us to Abraham. All right, Verse 6 uh, goes on to say, When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, hear that again, 30 years, he fathered Reu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Reu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. Reu lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sirag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sirag lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, we have arrived here at the family of God's special interest and care. From this point on, the story zooms in to one family out of all the families of the earth. God will work his redemptive purpose through the family of Abram. Verse 27 says, Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Let's stop here and notice that. The story of Abraham is used in the Bible to teach us about God and about us and about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. But as part of that, it means to illustrate for us the nature and life of faith. Abraham is often called the father of faith. And so almost everything about his story intends to illustrate and amplify the reality and the life of faith. So it's very important for us to see that Abraham's wife, Sarai, was barren. So here is lesson one about faith. Faith means believing in the promise of God despite evidence and experience which would seem to contradict it. God will promise to Abraham that he will become a great nation and the father of nations, but his wife is old and barren. So to believe that promise, Abraham will have to believe the word of God over everything else he thinks he knows about life. That is faith. Verse 31 says, Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of 
Haran and his grandson and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Now, if you put all the versions of this story about this family together, because, of course, this is the family of interest, so we get versions of the story retold throughout the Bible. If you put them all together, this one, the one we got in Acts 7, the one we have in Hebrews 11, it seems that Terah left Ur because his son, Abram, had received the call of God that we're going to hear about in the next chapter. But Terah didn't have the faith to persist in that journey, and he gave it up. When they, it says when they came to Haran, they settled there. Well, they had set out for Canaan. Why did they settle here, right? Haran, or, or Terah started but didn't finish. And it wasn't until after his father died that Abraham went all the way. Derek Kidner puts it this way. He says, Terah, lacking the vision, lost the will to persist. In Hebrews 11, 9 and 10, the lesson is drawn that only faith will stay the course. So here is our second lesson on the nature of faith from the family of Abraham. Real faith perseveres. Real faith finishes the journey. Many are those who start out, but Jesus says only the one who endures to the end will be saved. Old Testament and new, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You mentioned two faith lessons that I want to circle back here for a minute if we can. You said, first of all, that faith means believing in the promises of God, even when evidence and experience would seem to contradict it. Can you unpack that a little? I mean, you're not saying that faith is irrational, are you? No, I wouldn't say that faith is irrational, but I would say that it is by definition non-rational or trans-rational, meaning that Faith requires you to believe things that go beyond your insight or experience. So let's start with the existence of God. You cannot prove or disprove the existence of God, and any honest atheist will tell you that. Science and reason deal in observable phenomenon. The scientific method works on the basis of observable, testable, repeatable phenomenon. And that's a problem, of course, for the question of God, because you can't see God. You'll never find him at the bottom of your test tube or at the other end of your telescope. God, by definition, is beyond and above the physical environment, however widely conceived. Therefore, our relationship with God will always have to proceed on the basis of faith or trust. We will have to take God at his word. And that is exactly what God is teaching Abraham. That's why the text makes such a point of telling us that Sarai was barren. We need to know that. Abraham knew that, and nothing in Abraham's experience or observation inclined him to believe that a barren old woman would be able to conceive and bear a child. So when God says that that will happen, it serves as a test of faith. And every person's journey into faith will inevitably follow that same basic pattern. At some point, we will have to decide whether or not to take God at his word, despite a lack of evidence or experience on our part. We'll have to trust God. That's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. All right, absolutely. And then the other lesson you mentioned has to do with perseverance. 
You said real faith perseveres. Unpack that for us if you can. I did say that. And then right after that, I went on to quote Jesus, although I did not tell you that I was quoting Jesus. Jesus is the one who said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 10, 22. So faith is a journey. And as Jesus said in the parable of the soils, not everyone who sets out with some initial enthusiasm actually carries on. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. I think it'd be fair to say that we tend to make far too much of initial enthusiasm in the modern-day Western church and far too much of momentary decisions. The Bible talks in terms of journey and perseverance. And I know that we're going to hear a great deal more about Abraham's journey and, by extension, our journey in the chapters and episodes that lie ahead. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. 